Hello and welcome to Book Matters, a Casey Cardinia Library's podcast for people who love reading. My name is Janine and I love chatting about books to people who write books or read books. So sit back, tune in and you may just discover your next great read. In this episode, I talk to Australian author Kelly Rimmer about her new book, Truths I Never Told You. We find out what staff have been reading and we talk to Tim, our children's librarian, about reluctant readers and how to get them reading again. Kelly Rimmer is the USA Today best-selling women's fiction author of 10 novels. Her latest novel, Truths I've Never Told You, has just been released here in Australia. Her novels have sold over a million copies and have been translated into more than 20 languages. Kelly lives in New South Wales with her family. Welcome to Book Matters, Kelly, and thank you for talking to me. Hi, Janine. Thanks so much for having me. For our listeners out there, can you tell us how you became a writer and how you first got published? Um, I was, I'm the typical writer cliche. I wanted to write for as long as I could remember. So from quite a young age, creative writing was my hobby and it was just the thing that I did for fun and became quite an intense passion over the years. But it wasn't until I was in my um, mid-30s that I tried to find a publisher um, because I was quite nervous about showing people my writing. It was so precious to me that um, the idea that people might not like it just seemed to uh, but I was really lucky. The first publisher that I submitted to picked up the book and um, and here we are, 10 books later. Oh, that's great. Your new novel, Truths I've Never Told You, I've been lucky enough to have already read and I really loved it. Can you tell our listeners what your book's all about? Oh, thank you, Janine. It is the story of a family in Seattle in the US. Uh, we have Grace, who is um, a mum, a, quite a young mum in the late 1950s. She has four children under four, which would be really difficult for anyone at the best of times. But Grace also suffers from quite crippling postpartum depression or postnatal depression, as we call it here in Australia. But of course, being the late 1950s, that, that wasn't a recognised condition. All Grace knows is that she kind of goes into these deep periods of depression after she has children. And we also, it's also the story of her daughter, Beth. So long after Grace's death, Beth is now nearly 40. Beth is Grace's youngest child. And Beth has just had her first child herself, her long-awaited son, Noah. And she is also struggling with motherhood and trying to figure out why this is so hard. Um, when Beth's father, Patrick, becomes ill and has to be moved into a nursing home, Beth volunteers to clear out the family home. And she finds a series of notes that suggest everything she understands about Grace's death might not actually be true. Oh, and you also touch on her father who has dementia as well. Yes, yes. I wanted to write about this this specific form of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. And um, some variants of this disorder have this really unique uh, unique kind of characteristic in that for someone like Patrick, who's basically losing his language, his visual and artistic skills have really ramped up to compensate for it. And so Patrick, who had has, has been a builder his whole life and never had any interest in art, has become quite a prolific and gifted artist. And this is based on real life case studies that I read um, about people who, who as they're losing their language, they develop these other extraordinary skills. Even Ravel, who wrote Bolero, which is familiar music to a lot of people, it's believed that he suffered from this condition. And that particular piece is the same 12 bars over and over again, just, you know, with different different variances um, as the music progresses um, and doctors and scientists believe that as his, as his language skills were deteriorating he kind of became obsessed with this one passage of music and he just he just worked on it and worked on it until it's this beautiful 
beautiful piece. And everybody um, knows Bolero, that's for sure. Now, what sort of research did you do? Postnatal depression was relatively unheard of in the 1950s. Yeah. Yes, that is correct. So it wasn't until the mid 90s that it was recognised as a distinct condition, separate from, you know, from other depressive disorders. Um, and I actually, in the, I do, I, you know, this is, I've done, written quite a few books now, so I kind of have my research process um, pretty well established. So I start with reading quite widely on the subject. I'll read everything I can get my hands on about, in, the, in this case, I wanted to read about life for women in the 50s, and I wanted to read about, you know, frontotemporal dementia, and I was also quite focused on postnatal depression. Um, so I'd read and read lots of different things and I'd listened to a bunch of oral histories, but I really felt like I hadn't, I just wasn't happy with the way I was writing about postnatal depression. I was really lucky. I've got two children, but I never suffered from it myself. And so I wanted to try and understand it at a more, you know, not on an intellectual level, but I wanted to understand what it feels like, you know. Um, so I put out a call on my Facebook to ask if any of my friends knew of anyone who had suffered from the condition, particularly, you know, some time ago, and if anyone would be willing to be interviewed by me. And I had so many offers to sit down for a conversation that I couldn't even, couldn't possibly have interviewed them all, including people that I knew quite well, but I, I didn't know that they were suffering. Even, you know, people that I knew when we had children at the same time and I, they just never felt like they could share that they were going through this. Um, it's one of those conditions that women don't want to admit that they are actually suffering yes. from. Yes, like that, like it's something shameful. But of course, it is so common. One in five women will have this after the birth of a child. And so that, those conversations, those interviews that I did really fed into, really changed the tone of the book um, and really made me just marvel at the strength of women who can go through this immense life upheaval while also try, having to battle with this mental illness. It is, it is so cruel and women are just amazing. They are. Now, the other thing you highlighted in the book was Beth, who is Grace's daughter. She seems to be experiencing the same sorts of feelings and thoughts that her mother does. Did you find in your research that these issues could be genetic? Yes. So certainly it's not the case that every woman that gets postnatal depression has, you know, inherited it, but there are definitely patterns. One of the women I spoke to, her mother had had really similar experience to her and her grandmother had actually been um, institutionalised because of her postnatal depression after the birth of her mother. So there's, you know, we're watching this whole family tree of women who are each each feeling quite ashamed and the stigma is so strong, but every generation is having similar experiences. Experience. And so that really fed into that, that whole idea is a big component of the novel. This story really makes you reflect on the struggle of women through history. Was this something you wanted people to understand? Yes. Early on in my research for this book, I was at a dinner party with, you know, a bunch of my girlfriends and you know, Kelly, what are you writing at the moment? And I started talking about the book and really I mentioned that I was writing, I deliberately chose that time period for Grace because it's just before the advent of the pill, the contraceptive pill. Um, and as I was talking about the, to my friends, I said, can you imagine how different your life would have been if you hadn't had easy access to contraception? And it just, for each one of us, I think it was such a shocking thought that in such recent history, that the change has been so significant. That one technological change has, in ways that we can't even really imagine, changed the lives and the, the 
the way that women have agency and the ability to direct where our lives go and when. Um, and so I really wanted to reflect on that for Grace. You know, her whole life is so limited. She, her choices are so limited. She really is a victim of her culture and her society in a way that modern women don't have to deal with. So it was quite intentional. It was more the idea that women stay at home and men go out to work. Yes. Now, this isn't your first dual timeline book. In your other novel, The Things We Cannot Say, which was amazing, you had two stories running in two different time periods. Do you enjoy writing dual timeline stories? Um, You know, there's like a spectrum for writers. Some of us um, just kind of fly by the seat of our pants and we write as we go. And then way at the other end of the spectrum, there are writers like me. And before I start the novel, I know exactly how it's going to unfold. Um, And I know... I pretty much usually know where the chapter breaks are going to be. I always write in at least two points of view and I really like to write across two time periods too. So I generally know the books that I'm working on now at the moment, uh, for example, um, is another historical novel. And this morning I wrote a scene. I knew exactly how the scene would unfold. I knew where it would start. I knew where it would end. And (laughs) I don't know why this is how the process works for me, but I can't start until I know... I. I, I can't just start writing. I have to know where it's going. Or, um, And it's still, you know, I still manage to surprise myself. There's always themes that pop up that I didn't mean to write and things come together in unexpected ways, but it's always a detail that's a surprise. The broader plot is really very organised in my head. It's the only thing that I am organised about, I can assure you. But <laughs> This book that you're currently writing, I heard in another podcast that this is a sequel to The Things We Cannot Say. Is that right? Yeah, I think um, I think spinoff was probably one of a blogger said to me yesterday, "How's the spinoff going?" And I thought that's a perfect that is the perfect way to describe it because this character is a minor character. The protagonist in this book, um, Amelia, she is a minor character in the things we cannot say, and um, she so she appears in both timelines in that book. And I I really loved her. I loved writing her, but I didn't have any plans to write a book about her until I was at a book club. And someone said, oh, could you write a sequel? And I'm, well, no, that book doesn't really lend itself to a sequel. Um, so, no, I won't, I won't be able to write a sequel. And this one lady said to me, couldn't you write about one of the other characters? Like, what happened to Amelia? And I thought, I know what happened to Amelia. I could just write that down. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how you get inspiration from outside sources? It's so fascinating. It really, that just one comment just triggered this whole cascade of ideas. So, yeah, it's great. Hopefully, you'll be able to make your way down to Casey Cardinia Libraries and do a talk for us. Oh, Janine, I would love that so much. When my writer friends get to come and visit you, I'm so, so jealous. That is one of my, one of one of the things I am desperate to do. Hopefully with the next book, I'll be lucky enough to do it. Kelly, you seem to be able to write in many different genres. You have your women's contemporary fiction, your startup in the city rom-com romance titles and your historical fiction titles. You're very talented. Oh, thank do you. Do you have a particular genre you start with and do you write more than one book at a time? I almost always have two on the go at once. I almost always. Right now is the one exception to that rule. I'm not, um, I've, I've written another romance, but um, it's kind of um, with my editor for, you know, she's doing her, working her magic on editorial notes and I'm just working on my historical at the moment. But I tend to think of it as my historical and my contemporary kind of issue-driven novels, like Before I Let You Go, they they are much more research intensive and um, they, they're, harder, they're harder to write. That is just the reality of it for me anyway. Romance is hard to write, 
but um, for me, writing those those novels that explore these really difficult issues, it takes up a different part of my brain. I don't know how else to describe it. Um, and so having a romance to go and work on when I need a break from, well, for example, the scenes I'm writing at the moment are set in Warsaw during the occupation and that every every new piece of research is more heartbreaking than the last. And so it's really nice when I can go over to another document and the other document is something that is just lighter. Even though I explore some, you know, social issues in my romances sometimes, I know they're going to have a happy ending. I know that at the end of the day, there's going to be some kind of satisfying resolution for those characters. Whereas the reality is life isn't that neat and tidy. And my historical novels certainly do not, things don't work out perfectly for each character. Um, And so it's nice having both. I think as a reader, you can get bogged down in one genre. Sometimes you just want to read something light to brush away all the heavy things you've just read about in the last one. Yep, yep. And it's like I always say there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure when it comes to reading. Like every book has something different to offer you. And so, I, you know, I don't have any any guilty pleasure reads. I'll read whatever I feel like reading and I just – and I think readers, that's how readers should approach books, you know. Every book has merit. That was my next question. Do you have a preferred genre that you like to read and do you like to read outside your genre? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I don't do well with crime for some reason. <laughs> I, I see all these passionate crime readers and, you know, psychological thriller readers and I think, oh, that sounds so engrossing, but I get spooked so easy. <laughs> so I like to read. I really like reading historical fiction. I really like reading. I love Diane Chamberlain, as I think you know. You and I have discussed how wonderful she is um, and I love <laughs> I love, love, love the Jodie Picou style novels. But, I, you know, I read a lot of nonfiction. And in the last few years, I've really been quite obsessed with memoirs. I love listening to memoir as an audiobook. So I've been devouring those too. But I do really, truly believe that every single book has something to teach us. So I try to read fairly widely. So what are you reading at the moment? Well, on my bedside table at the moment, <laughs> which is actually not far from me as I talk to you, I've got Sandy Docker's new book, um, The Banktier Bay Beach Shack. I've got Kylie Reed, Such a Fun Age. People keep telling me I need to read that book. And I have got, and I've just started a book that you actually gave me, Janine. It's Diane Chamberlain's Big Lies in a Small Town. And so far, I am loving it. It is you know, I such I love just love her writing. She's such a great writer. So that, that's where. I'm yes, so that's another dual timeline novel. Yep, yep, and nobody does it better. <laughs> She's just so fantastic. Thank you, Kelly, for chatting me today about your new book, and I wish you all the best with it. Your book is one of our top titles this month. Oh, I great, made sure great. all your books are available on the catalogue. So pop on and reserve <laughs> Kelly's books now. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Kelly, and we look forward to seeing you next year. Thank you. I can't wait. It's going to be the best. (laughs) Hi, I'm Moira from Packenham Library, and this month I've been reading Back After the Break by Osher Ginsberg, which is an eye-opening autobiography um, it's written with a great deal of honesty and humility. Osher Ginsberg is, uh, you would know him as a compare of Australian Idol and um, The Bachelor. In this biography, he's, he talks about his journey through mental illness and alcoholism. He writes with a lot of humour and, as I said, very honest 
uh, account of the times that he spent, very difficult times that he had during uh, his jobs, uh, various jobs with TV and radio. Uh, what I really loved about it was it really gave you a glimpse into the, the mind of somebody who's suffering from mental illness and also alcoholism. Um, I think people who really enjoy this book would be people who like to read biographies, particularly stories about people who've overcome addiction and are dealing with mental health issues. Um, but as I said, it's it's actually got quite a bit of humour and it's a very honest book. Uh, it's available on RB Digital in ebook form and on BorrowBox as an e-audio Hi, it's Jenny from Bundle Place Library. I've been reading After the Party by Cassie Hamer. Now, this book was recommended to me by one of the Bundle Bookworms last year, and I found it a really gripping read, very emotional, lots of ups and downs, and puts you in the position of questioning your own morals and what you would do if you were put in the same situation. So the story centres around the family, Lisa Wilden and her husband, Scott, who have two children already and want to have a third, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. So she holds a birthday party for her daughter, Ava, who's turning five and invites everybody in the class. As the children, the party happens, it's all really good. And as the children are getting picked up by their parents at the end, all get picked up except for one little girl. And so unfolds the mystery of why has she been left and where is her mother and when will her mother be coming back to pick her up. So as time goes on, of course, Lisa and Scott get more and more attached to the little girl and feel that she completes their family. So at the end, does she give her back or do they get to keep her? You'll have to read it and find out. This book would suit people who like family dramas and women's fiction. And I can't wait to read her next book, which is out, and it's called The End of Cuspid Close. Hi, I'm Courtney from Endeavour Hills Library, and I've been reading Red, White and Royal Blue by Casey McQuiston. This book basically is about America's first son, Alex, and uh, Prince of Wales, Henry, and they have an altercation where they do not like each other, but they cause an international incident, and so they're forced to pretend to be friends, but eventually it becomes more than friends, and they enter into a romantic relationship, and everything that follows is kind of hilarious and funny and romantic. I really like this book because it's a nice, sappy romance novel. It is obviously a gay romance novel and you've got gay characters who are at the forefront of this story and nothing is hidden behind the doors. Everything about this relationship is out there and it's a good little romance. I quite liked it. If you're after a good romance that with a few funny twists and turns, then this book is for you. Have you got kids at home that just can't seem to get into reading? Well, Tim, one of our children's librarians, is here to offer some tips about getting them turning the pages in no time. 
Hi, Janine. How are you going? I'm well, thanks, Tim. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Now, I know it's pretty hectic out there with students not being able to get to school and a lot of people working from home. And I know sometimes it can be really tricky to get kids inspired about reading. But part of my job is to do that. And um, I really love finding ways to motivate people to get into reading. So here's a couple of tips that I came up with about supporting reluctant readers in the home. My first tip is always to think about what they're seeing around them. So the people in the place that they're living, are they reading themselves? Um, And a lot of the time uh, I hear from parents who say, oh, he just doesn't He just doesn't seem to want to pick up a book whenever I tell him to go and do some reading or her to go and do some reading. Um, And the first thing I always ask is, okay, well, what are you reading at the moment? What are you interested in? What's your passion? And sometimes you'll find that people who want the kids to read are not really modelling it for their kids in the first place. You might be, that's great, that's really, really excellent. And that can come in the form of lots of different things, but a lot of the time they're not. So it might be something as simple as reading the newspaper in the morning or having a book that you sit down with while you're eating breakfast or having your lunch. Um, Even in the afternoon, if you take a break for 20 minutes just to sit down and read a book while they're around, just so they can see people reading and seeing them enjoying it. Or sharing something that you're reading as well is always really good too. There's a funny anecdote, um, something even as simple as odd spots in the newspapers or things like that, funny stories um, that can drive kids interests and really pick that that curiosity i've also i also try and make reading a fun experience so that starts at a very young age so you may have come along to a story time at a library or a baby time setting up that reading time as a as a special one-on-one with you at home so if you are doing bedtime stories for example that's a really good routine to keep up as long as you can so having having a chance to share a story it makes kids feel safe it's a it's a chance for them to to bond with you and they'll remember that and they'll associate reading later on as a really positive experience if reading english is something that you struggle with at home maybe you're learning english for the first time what's something you can do is to listen to a book together so getting an audio book um, those can be really handy because you can share that experience together pictures go a long way Um, before we learn to read words we learn to read pictures we see pictures and we make up stories don't be afraid of your kids reading graphic novels or comic books there's more and more today than ever before on offer and they're better than ever before with the content um, the way that they're the way that they're written the the materials inside them are often dealing with issues and things that Previously, you know, comics were very simple. They were, you know, superheroes beating each other up or flying around the sky and rescuing a cat from a tree. But these days, there's a lot more in them. There's language. They're using a greater vocabulary. They're dealing with issues. There's some really cool stuff out of that young graphic novel area that deal with emotions and understanding each other and identity. I think a lot of kids today and it's really funny going back about a month we had a harry potter day here at bundle place library and you asked the question how many kids had read the harry potter books and of of the of the hundred or so kids that we had maybe only a handful had managed to read them all a lot of kids their first exposure to to stories these days is through film or television and um, things like The Hobbit more and more. I think kids watch The Hobbit and then they get a chance to read it. But incentivize that watching as a as an opportunity after you finish the book. So start with the book, read the book and make it special. 
so that when you get around to watching that movie, that's the kind of payoff. They get to see that at the end. For some, they need the visuals. So showing them the pictures from the movie or the characters in posters or whatever those things are while you're reading the book can really enhance it. For those who haven't started reading books like Harry Potter with their children, for whatever reason that is, that's fine. You don't have to. There's no... um, prescribed reading list for children ever but they've just started re-releasing those with illustrations and pictures in them they're fully illustrated now so you can get your hands on a beautiful copy um, and you can actually see these wonderful hand-drawn characters um, that really engage those kids that need that visual stimulus to go with the words that they're reading as well Listening to reading is really valuable too. Like I said, read alouds from books or anecdotes from the newspaper that you're reading um, and hearing children read back to you, making that an experience. So finding something that's below their reading level, so something a little bit simpler that they could comfortably read aloud to you without struggling through it can be a really great thing um, to, to do. If you've got an re- audio recorder in your phone or you've got a recorder in your iPad or something at home that can record audio, try getting your child to read to you and record it. Get them to make an audio book for a friend. Get them to read a story. Create opportunities to read beyond just um, sort of a sit-down reading time. So give them give them purpose to their reading. Get them to read out of things out of catalogues for you. Get them to read recipes for you while you're cooking or making things in the kitchen. Find reasons to read. We do it almost without thinking. The amount of times we read things in a day is <laughs> so many. Use those opportunities as a, as a learning opportunity to get your kids out there and reading and reading back to you. And I suppose the, the final thing is don't force kids into reading a book that they don't want to read. They, they've, everyone's different. And the amount of times I'll recommend a book black and blue at the library for someone to, to read and then they come back and go, no, that wasn't for me or they didn't like that. I mean, it happens. It happens quite a lot. But you also get those times when you might find just the perfect perfect book for them is is just about asking them what their interests where their interests lie and um, looking up that topic on the library catalogue and trialing things. I mean, a library is a boon because really you don't have to worry about paying for the items. You can return them. You can bring them back. So if you're ever stuck for choices, um, you can always return them and, and try something new. And that's what we're here for too. So if you're looking for someone to help you pick books for your child, librarians are pretty handy at it too. So yeah, that's my tips for um, getting reluctant readers back into reading. Thanks, Janine. Thank you, Tim. For more details on the books mentioned in this podcast, as well as information from the library, head to www.cclc.vic.gov.au or visit our new Facebook group, In a Nook with a Book, where you can let us know what you've been reading. Until next time, this has been Janine and you've been listening to Book Matters, a CCLC podcast for people who like to read, made by people who love reading. Goodbye. Goodbye.